Welcome to Addiction and the Family, Episode 10, Resilience. How has addiction affected your family? It robbed me of my father. Addiction's affected my family in absolutely every way. Um, it has caused a lot of turmoil. It goes back to what I understand is at least three generations. It robbed my daughter of her mother. It robbed my mother of her daughter. Addiction has made our family quite challenging. Addiction affected my family tremendously. Uh, it's affected my relationship with my sister where I wouldn't I'd go for months without talking to her. It's a very difficult thing for everybody involved. It doesn't just affect the, the one individual. It's a disease that affects the whole family. Addiction has spread not only genetically through like some of my uh, relatives and I assume ancestors. It's uh, generational. I think of him every day. Welcome to Addiction in the Family, a podcast by and for family members of anyone with an addiction. My name is Casey Arriaga and I'm a social worker and addiction counselor at both Windmill Wellness Ranch and In Mind Out Emotional Wellness Centers in Texas. I've led hundreds of family workshops, but I've also lived the experience of being family to addiction as both a child and adult. My wife Kira and I were in our addictions together for over a decade and now have been in recovery together for almost 20 years. Join us as we offer experience, strength, and realistic hope about how you and your family can find recovery together. Hi, this is Kira. In this episode, we will be exploring the vital human trait of resilience, and we'll look at what role resilience plays in recovery from the devastating effects of addiction, both for those afflicted with the illness and for those who love them. We will look at the idea of bouncing up rather than just bouncing back, hear examples of resilience, learn how to recognize it in yourself and those you love, and learn how to build and grow resilience. All this after a short break to hear from one of our sponsors. Addiction in the Family is brought to you in part by the generous support of Windmill Wellness Ranch, an innovative treatment center located in the beautiful hill country of Texas and serving clients and their families from throughout the United States. I'm Shannon Mollish, CEO of Windmill Wellness Ranch. We offer the best in neurotechnology to heal the brain and the best therapy to heal the mind. Call us today at 210-762-6217. Welcome back. So what is resilience? Simply put, it is the ability to recover from adversity, or as some people in recovery say, to get back up one more time than you fall down. It should be pretty obvious that this is a big deal if you're dealing with addiction, since the road to recovery is not a straight line or a smooth path. I've found that when I dig into the story of anyone who, quote, just quit one day, end quote, I usually find that they actually tried to stop many times, whether by making the decision over and over again, or by actually getting rid of all the alcohol or other drugs, or dating or gambling apps, or junk food, or whatever else, only to go back and resupply themselves all over again. Similarly, many family members can tell me about their firmly made commitments to stop enabling or to not tolerate intolerable behavior. When I hear such stories, what strikes me is that they got up and reached again for health and happiness. No matter how many times it had been, no matter how hard it looked, they gave it another shot. That's resilience. While the strength of resilience has long been recognized as a core human trait, the idea has gotten more attention in the first part of the 21st century 
Thanks in large measure to the work of Dr. Martin Seligman, considered by many to be the founder of the modern field of positive psychology. Right around the turn of the century, Dr. Seligman was the head of the American Psychological Association, and he put out a call to his colleagues to join him in putting energy and resources into studying human happiness and how it can be improved. This may sound like an obvious idea, but most psychological theory focused on human unhappiness under the assumption that all we need to do is remove unhappiness and then happiness will naturally take its place. This is somewhat akin to trying to get physically fit by only removing unhealthy eating habits. As much as this is a good idea, simply eliminating junk food will not build muscle mass. In the same way, removing unhappiness will not create happiness. That, it turns out, takes separate effort. The ongoing research that resulted from Dr. Seligman's call to action has taught us a lot about how to build hope, self-esteem, and connection to others it turns out that this is a great recipe for resilience. Before we go any further, I have to give a shout out to another important pioneer in the field, and that is Dr. Jason Powers. Dr. Powers studied directly under Dr. Seligman with one goal in mind, to bring the principles and techniques of positive psychology to bear on addiction recovery in hopes of creating better outcomes. Dr. Powers was in turn my mentor in this. While we no longer work directly together, I use the things he taught me all the time in helping people with addiction and their family members to live happier lives in recovery. Dr. Powers has his own podcast called Positive Recovery MD, like Medical Doctor, and he is one of the founders of the Positive Recovery Treatment Centers. It is with great pleasure that we welcome Dr. Powers to Addiction and the Family. First off, before we jump into a bunch of questions and stuff, I just want to thank you for doing the work you do, both on like the global level for bringing the ideas and techniques of positive psychology into addiction recovery, and then on a personal level for training me and helping me to use these things in my own work in recovery. Yeah, man. Dude, right back at you. I was writing the script for this episode, and, and then I was like, wait, you know what I wish I, I wish I had like a Dr. Powers button that I could just like hit and you'd be right there. And I thought, oh yeah, they call that a telephone. <laughs> That's awesome. So we're doing an episode on resilience, and I guess I'll start out by asking you, how does the field of positive psychology view resilience? Positive psychology views resilience as an integral part of living a good life or, you know, being happy because um, things don't always go your way. In fact, I, I, I would say that most of the time, resilience is the skill that helps equanimity more than the well-being advancers that they that they study it's, it's as much of the backbone as strength but i wonder what does research say about resilience you know there's some people that, that just seem to fall apart when adversity strikes and other people seem to have this like magical potion or innate ability and the good news is is that those people don't have uh, something that they're born with that the rest of us can't learn and those that sort of seemingly fall apart or become kind of just regulator out of whack when things don't go their way, they can learn these tools. They're really just sort of tools. And it began with the work of um, Albert Ellis and cognitive behavioral therapy. It's like Aristotle's a footnote to like all philosophy and cognitive behavioral therapy is the footnote to psychiatry and psychology. And so talking about that with cognitive behavior therapy, where does resilience come in there? Right, so cognitive behavioral therapy is basically, it's like looking at your thoughts and your behaviors 
and being able to alter one or the other. Um, there's a great saying in like the 12 step fellowships that sort of informal, but it's said all over the world. And that's like, you can't think your way into a better way of acting, but you can act your way into a better way of feeling or thinking. I've heard it both ways. And basically cognitive behavioral therapy enables resilience by um, allowing us to pause and see the errors of our thinking and then reassign thoughts and beliefs to events that happen so that we don't act out and don't become sort of beholden to whatever emotion is swirling around. So making it more specific around recovery and on this podcast especially, we're looking at recovery as being something for people with addiction, but also for family members. So what role would you say resilience plays in recovery? So I'd say that, you know, resilience is synonymous informally with emotional recovery or emotional sobriety is the term that's more often thrown around. And I think it's important to note that, you know, addiction is a family disease. And so if somebody in the family system is, you know, happy to see their loved one get treatment, but they themselves don't get educated or address any um, sort of misinformation that they might be acting on, then resilience will allow them to find help. So what, what that might look like operationally is for families, you know, we all go through addiction together. And resilience is, you know, for the person, the one person that might be like going to the, you know, AA or, or whatever, whatever the, their recovery avenue is, like, you know, that, that's great. They're going to they're gonna sort of be mentored and hope, you know, maybe they, might, they might have to see a therapist to kind of like help them with their thoughts and behaviors. But I think resilience will help the family system as a whole because there's a difference. And adapting to it, the new system will require changing thoughts, beliefs, and, and so forth. We'll hear more of Casey's interview with Dr. Powers in just a bit, but first we want to look a little more at the role resilience plays in recovery. The basic reason we say resilience is so important in recovery is because recovery is hard. This is just as true for family members as it is for anyone trying to overcome addiction. In some ways, family members have a more difficult time of it because there is even less of a sense of control over what is happening. This means that family members have to draw on their own natural and developed strengths in order to understand the ups and downs of both someone else's recovery and their own. Without resilience, it would be easy for everyone involved to just give up and give in to the misery of addiction. Instead, resilience allows people to get up one more time, try something they haven't tried yet, come at familiar problems with renewed energy, and find more strength in themselves than they ever knew they had. I've seen family members shake their heads and people with addiction feel loads of shame because they have been to so many treatment centers. Instead of looking down on such people, I see those who are always willing to give it one more shot. Someone pointed out to me recently that the only reason someone can be considered a chronic relapser is because they keep trying. After all, you can't be considered to have relapsed if you weren't trying to get sober. So relapsing over and over again means you were trying to get sober over and over again. Doing what I do, I get to see people find their miracle. Sometimes they and their family members want to give us the credit because we happen to be the treatment center where they finally get it, but I know better than to let my head get too big around this. As much as I've been proud of our efforts at every treatment center I've had the privilege to work at, and I really love the team where I work now, 
I also know that the person with the addiction undoubtedly gained something with each treatment stay before they got to us. Whether it was a little more knowledge or a profound insight, they were able to take all those lessons and moments of growth and all the pain in between and meld them together into their breakthrough experience. Without that person having the resilience to keep on trying, that moment would never have come. As we'll hear in just a moment, resilience is not just an individual trait, but something that can apply just as much to an entire family system. touches on something that you had mentioned earlier, you know, some individuals seem to just naturally display more resilience. Well, in the same way, some families naturally display more resilience. And one bit of research I was reading just this morning talked about this, how some families show more resilience. But just as you said earlier, what I think is so exciting is that just because maybe naturally your family system doesn't outwardly display as much resilience doesn't mean that they can't learn it. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, did the study talk what did it talk about any like cultural differences uh one thing that came up is that so much research focuses on risk factors rather than resilience factors but i'm finding in the more recent studies more and more are starting to look at resilience factors instead and this applies to drug addiction but also internet food addiction uh, just to name a couple so i read a really great article this morning um, that went into the neurobiology and epigenetics of resilience. And for those that aren't as familiar with that term, epigenetics means the way our genes, like our potential or our tendency, actually expresses. Because just because you have a gene for something doesn't mean it's going to happen or not happen, but environmental factors will affect that. So it's looking at the epigenetics of resilience as well as addiction. And the basic conclusion was that so much biological research is focused on finding like a magic bullet medication for addiction. And the author said we might do better to look at how to enhance people's lives and environments, teaching them better resilience skills, and see improved outcomes. So the author suggests we should spend more time looking at people who are showing resilience in high-risk environments and figure out what are they doing right so that some of these things can be taught to those who struggle more individually and generationally through families uh, that have problems with addiction. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So yeah, so like while you're talking, I'm thinking, um, it reminds me of, God, what was that study, that, that Rat City? Rat Park. Rat Park. And your take on it, when I, when I brought that up to you, you had the most brilliant insight. And I, you know, I've since used it, but like those rats weren't abandoned. They weren't bullied. You know, they, <laughs> they weren't ostracized. They weren't shamed. They didn't have trauma. So, that, so, you know, epigenetics basically is like, it's kind of like what we do changes the expressions of our genes. So, you know, we're not hardwired, right? And if you go into a system where you have a history of those things like trauma, abuse, being bullied and all that, or genetic predisposition, then, you know, you're going to have changes. You're going to have functional, structural changes, both like the hippocampus, uh, you know, the part of the brain that controls uh, like kind of like figuring out where you are and then you know the midbrain areas where trauma resides like if you have a really bad experience then you react more strongly like you spook easy and there's there's almost very little you can do long term to, to change that but you can change the genes the gene expressions so that it's quieter to some degree like there's this kind of movement to insert 
uh, electrodes. There was like these Chinese studies where they thought they could cure addiction by eliminating that part of the brain. And, and, and it's oh, just boy. funny because that, I know that organ is so complex. We don't even understand uh, 1% of it. And, and here we are trying to muck with it. It reminds me back in the day when we were doing frontal lobotomy, thinking that that would cure it. And giving people tools like how to be a better friend so you're more magnetic and you get that best resource, which is other people. You know, you may not really know how to respond when people share good news or how, how to be a good listener or, or, or other things. So that, you know, we, you give people tools to change what's, what's around them, right? And, and hopefully, you know, moving forward, we'll be able to discover new things. Like, instead of <laughs> inserting electrodes to the brain, like, you know, what, what's the best kind of living situation? Uh, what, what are the best, uh, you know, apps to use? What are the ones to avoid? Also just as important. Just yeah, parenting skills. I mean, the author of this yeah. research talked about that. He, they had noticed this in animal studies. And at first they just thought it was genetic. Some rats were genetically better parents. Really? And of course, our society being what it is, and some of the research they found, you know, they were focusing on the rat mothers. But then they found, oh, this also applies for the rat fathers. So dads, we're not off the hook, um, nor are we powerless. And they found that uh, these things were getting passed down, but then they found that they could sort of swap where rats with the better mothering skills were helping to raise the rats that genetically shouldn't have as good parenting skills, and they were able to pick up and improve their parenting skills intergenerationally. So the author was saying, first of all, we don't want to overgeneralize rat studies, because we're not rats, at least some of us. Um, but, (laughs) (laughs) But we can look and say, okay, so similarly, if we look at high-risk situations, um, places where we know there's a lot of addiction, inner city, stuff like that, let's look at the families that are doing really well, uh, that are not falling into intergenerational patterns around addiction, and find out what can we learn, and from what we learn, what can we teach? So, you know, imagine a world where the first wave going in is not law enforcement to say, okay, we need to arrest a bunch of people. And I know that's a, it's a really hard job. I'm not bagging on law enforcement in the least. I mean, God bless them for going in and doing that job. But it's been suggested a lot of times, I may be a little biased as a social worker here, but like, what if we're sending social workers in there at the same time? What if we are helping to build community support? What if we are looking at interventions where the first line of defense is to say, let's help you feel better about your life. And just like you were saying, respond better to things that are happening around you so that you're not reaching for that quick fix. Because it's funny, you know, that the author and you both mentioned this idea there's no magic bullet cure, but he wants a magic bullet cure. Well, that's what addiction is. When I was in my addiction, I was looking for a magic bullet cure. Let me just do some things so that I feel better and don't feel so stressed. And, you know, somebody says, if you drink this, smoke this, do this, look at that, be with that person. You know, if you do all those things, Mm -hmm. instant cure. And I'm like, well, perfect. There you go. We we solved the problem. You mentioned the hippocampus, if I'm not mistaken, memory formation, right? right? I started forming these memories saying like, okay, never forget. I found the perfect solution. Uh, except I'm going to give a quick shout out to uh, one of your books, When the Servant Becomes the Master. Uh, that's exactly what happens. This thing that is a magic bullet cure turns out to be a long-term horror. Right. And so 
we have this opportunity instead to say like, okay, what's a long-term cure looks like? Maybe it involves teaching resilience. Dude, that would that would be awesome. And the thing about uh, how how animals um, learn how to parent from sort of surrogates, this is a really informal way of, of saying the same thing. But what we tell people all the time early in recovery is allow others' frontal lobes to be your surrogates while yours is healing. Because, you know, it's <laughs> disruptive. Like, it's another great bit of wisdom I've, I heard in rooms. And it makes a lot of sense. Like, just kind of allow others' insight to be processed with your own while your brain is healing. Well, yeah, now when you say that, allowing that surrogate frontal lobe, you know, in the tradition of 12-step recovery, you turn to a sponsor or other people right. in the group that have more experience and say, like, I'm pretty sure my first thought is a little off here. <laughs> you know, this one of the, the slogans you hear in 12-step recovery is think, think, think. And at one point I'm like, isn't thinking what got me in trouble? And someone said, no, it means think three times before you, <laughs> before you jump in or maybe right. get three opinions from people who are more experienced. Of course, again, this applies just as much for family members because family members can get stuck out there doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for a different yep. result, even though they've never gotten one. And there's the opportunity to go into some of the family fellowships like Smart Recovery Family and Friends or Al-Anon or Families Anonymous and talk to some people that are farther down the path and who can say, hey, I used to think that way and I found this works better for me. Yeah, exactly. You know, we're such a social and tribal animal that that relying on social support is very healing for our brain and uh, an excellent totally idea for mental health. That's the greatest resource for, for everything, for both you know, building resilience and enhancing joy. Resilience is often described in terms of bouncing back or returning to a previous state after undergoing stress. But some in the positive psychology field say we can do better than that. Instead of bouncing back, we look at bouncing up. This involves not just getting back to your previous state, but instead seeing where you can grow from adversity. Casey and Dr. Powers talked about this a little bit. One of the ideas that you taught me was the idea of bouncing up, so not just bouncing back. Right. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So that's in the context of a traumatic event. Like, again, another awesome Caseyism is uh, when I say post-traumatic, you know, what do you hear? And people say post-traumatic stress disorder because everybody's heard of that. And, and sort of like when bad things happen, most of the time people have post-traumatic growth, which is bouncing up. And you, you don't, it doesn't really get as much press. There's more reports of post-traumatic growth than there are post-traumatic stress disorder. Like I, I wouldn't throw my kids in war-torn Kosovo during the wars and, and go, all right, you'll thank me later. Like it just doesn't work that way. Like we, we don't like when that those things happen, but people get through those and they don't just get back to where they were, but they have a deeper appreciation of little things. Their sense of self is enriched. There's a more meaning and purpose in life. So there's a lot of things that happen and that's where the bouncing up happens. And addiction is going to be traumatic. And I'd say a lot of people go into addictive behavior because they have past traumas, but I've said to my clients for years now, if you had zero trauma going into your addiction, you'll have plenty coming out the other side. <laughs> and that's true for family members too. Families right. get totally traumatized individually and as a system. So being able to recognize that there's an opportunity to come out of here, not just the same, because I've heard so many family members say like, oh, I just want my old so-and-so back. And I'm like, we're gonna do better than that because there's an opportunity in recovery 
to come out better than where you started and better than you would have been if you'd never had to deal with the addiction in the first place. Exactly. It is important to note that many people do not move straight from trauma to bouncing up. If someone experiences PTSD or other trauma reactions, including addiction, depression, anxiety, etc., it doesn't mean they aren't as strong or that they are somehow less than. The difference is often a combination of genetic and environmental factors that nobody chooses for themselves, which is to say that it's as much luck as anything else. The ability to resiliently bounce up can be taught and practiced, however. Those of us who find that post-traumatic growth and bouncing up do not come as easily or naturally, some of the things that can help are getting professional assistance, especially counseling techniques such as EMDR and internal family systems therapy and support groups for people who've gone through similar experiences. Some people find that recovery fellowships have played an important role in helping them to bounce up. Casey and I both needed a lot of time and help to deal with our traumas, but we've both learned and now teach how to not only survive trauma, but to learn and grow from it. Our lives are dramatically better than they once were, thanks in part to the fact that we continue to work on our recovery from the effects of trauma, often with help from others. This is an important idea for family members to understand, since many of them have said they want to get past the addiction, treating it like a bump in the road. Such sentiments are very understandable, but to live a functional and happy life, the person with the addiction will have to keep working on their recovery to come out better than how they went in. That is the route to bouncing up. Luckily, recovery offers many opportunities to do this, not only for the person with the addiction, but also for the family members. Living with addiction can be traumatic and family members have an equal opportunity for growth in the face of this adversity. Family members might learn to accept more support, let go more, or develop a deeper spiritual relationship. Such things may start as ways to survive the addiction, but they also present mechanisms by which the family can come out better than it started. These positive coping skills may be continued long after recovery has stabilized. When we return, Casey and Dr. Powers will talk about recognizing and building resilience. Addiction and the Family is made possible in part by you, our listeners, through the power of Patreon. If you want to help support this podcast, simply drop by our support page at patreon.com slash addictionandthefamily, or alternatively, go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search for Addiction and the Family. Any level of support helps us carry the message, and official patrons get sneak peek excerpts from my book in progress, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions. Visit our page on Patreon for details. Let's return to the interview. So what are some ways that people seeking recovery, including family members, can recognize resilience in themselves? So think about hard things you've been through, challenges, not just trauma, but you know, how have you dealt with setbacks? How have you dealt with hardships? You know, the big trauma is easy to recognize, and, and you may or may not have gotten through them, but if you can look for little wins in your path, then you, you see that there's been resilience in action, and nothing's too small. Because when, when, we, you know, when we teach people resilience, and we have them look at their thinking errors, we ask them, okay, just think of something sort of small that happened that created some unwanted emotions or actions, and 
you know, it could be that my wife spilled orange juice on the floor in the kitchen and got all over the dog. I remember somebody, <laughs> uh, you know, using that as an example. I, I think I remember that story. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, so like, so look for little things that cause irritation, annoyance, uh, you know, just something that didn't go your way. And how did you deal with it? There's going to be a lot of examples where we didn't deal with it the way we wanted, but there's going to be examples that we were able to like compartmentalize it and whatever. Those little things are resilience. And we downplay little wins too much. So if you're, you think, um, you know, I'm not resilient, I, I'd say, ah, contraire. I, I would bet with some investigation you find it. So what do you recommend for people who are looking to build their own resilience? If you want to build your own resilience, work with somebody that can help guide you, right? It's hard to sort of self-direct when we're not aware of our blind spots and our cognitive thinking distortions and that type of thing. There, there are books. I mean, I, I learned a whole lot from just the book Authentic Happiness by Seligman because he goes over how to do the ABCs, which is activating events, thoughts or beliefs, and then emotions or actions. And that really helped me, but I, I do have a lot of background in that, and so I was able to do it, and, and you might be able to do it on your own, and, and that's a great start. I was going to give a shout out for the book Hardwiring Happiness by Rick Hansen also. I got a lot out of that one. Hardwiring yeah. Happiness, that one, right? Yeah, Hardwiring Happiness had a lot of just concrete positive psychology suggestions about how to create greater happiness. And through that, I think greater resilience. So my last question for you, what is your best moment of resilience? Oh, wow. Um, okay, it has to be when I was in rehab and I thought my life was completely over. I mean, I was, I was completely devastated. I spent, I'd say the last two thirds of when I was in active addiction, avoiding uh, getting caught. Like I didn't want awareness. I didn't want other people to know I had it. So just hiding it, but it, of course it was progressing and then that was, it was getting more difficult to do so, but uh, like kind of coming out and people knowing that I was like, like the worst thing in the world I thought was devastating and so I thought my life was over. My wife and I were separated at the time and, and just every, like everything was gone. And then I was hopeless, helpless, not suicidal, but just like in this pit. There was a, a lot of ways that I got out of it. That was the most resilience I showed because everything was starting to give off and just like crawling back out of the pit slowly and being patient and allowing myself to have to be imperfect doing it and showing others like my warts and all and accepting myself like that. I think that's got to be the greatest victory, the greatest resilience victory ever. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. So before we close up, take a moment and plug things. Where can people find you, follow you more in your work? Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. So um, there's a podcast that I'm hosting called Positive Recovery MD, which you can find where you find podcasts and I work at Positive Recovery Center, so you know if you just go to Positive Recovery MD or a Positive Recovery MD podcast, either of those, you know you'll be able to find like where where I work and the work we do and and that type of thing. Absolutely, and for the listeners out there, in case it wasn't clear, it's M and D at the end, like medical doctor, like Doctor Powers is. Uh, man, well, it has been fantastic, and uh, yeah, I'd love to have you back again. Love to just stay in contact because it's always so good to talk to you. All right, man. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye, Bye, It is always such a pleasure talking to Dr. Powers. And after we recorded this episode, Dr. Powers graciously invited Kira and me to be on his podcast at PositiveRecoveryMD.com. Every episode is worth checking out, and Kira and I are on episode 30. 
with Dr. Powers and Julie DeNofa, two great people to talk about for positive psychology and recovery. Thanks for being with us through another episode of Addiction and the Family. As they say in many recovery meetings, take what you liked and leave the rest. Go out and explore the possibilities for recovery in your life and give your loved ones the space and dignity to make their own choices. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. It means a lot to us. If you know anyone else who could use what we have to offer, please tell them about Addiction to the Family. If you have comments about this podcast, have a question you'd like to answer it on the show, or want to contribute your voice, or just want to say hi, you can write to us at addictioninthefamily at gmail.com. We're also happy to be your friend on Facebook, and we can be found tweeting on Twitter. Addiction in the Family is produced, written, and engineered by Kira and Casey Ariaga, with music by Casey. 